What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. All right, folks, we're back. And I have a fascinating and I think just riveting, uh, inspiring person here, Stacy Lannert. And one of the things that I think is, is, well, first of all, this is a story about somebody who got convicted, life without parole. She was um, physically, sexually abused by her father, and she killed her father. And the story that wraps around that, she spent 18 years um, in prison. And in that time period, eventually the, uh, her sentence was commuted by the governor, and then she was eventually pardoned. Her story has been one that many people have been interested in and want to cover. Um, Oprah, American Justice, A&E, Nancy Grace, 2020, Primetime. She wrote a book, Redemption, A Story of Sisterhood, Survival, Finding Freedom Behind Bars. And I'm, I was lucky enough to meet Stacy uh, to give a shout out here to Chantel Fisher, who she had put together a very cool um, panel on Second Chances, and uh, Stacy was giving the keynote speech. And I was thinking, sitting there thinking, gosh, I'd really like to have this girl on my podcast. She is incredible. And so Stacy and I have been talking back and forth, so I snagged her. I got Stacy. So Stacy, welcome. Welcome in. Thank you very much. So your story... I'm going to ask you to, to scoot up so everybody will be able to hear you. Okay. <laughs> All right. So your story is just one, you know, it, obviously the reason why it's been covered is it, it has so many layers to it. And then the back end of it, I think it was what is so, I think, inspiring is, is that you took your life and now you're an attorney. Um, you're a district defender uh, in the Missouri State Public Defender's Office. You work with people on parole, and, and you're, you're using all those experiences. I was just talking to you about the fact that isn't it so effective and, and needed to have people who have experienced the system have a seat at the table to be able to help? And you're doing that, using all of your experience and making a difference with and, – and you took all those steps, and they weren't easy steps. We were just talking about that. They're taking that at LSAT and going and doing and not knowing if you're going to be accepted and what all the things happen. So, Stacy, take, take us back to what was life like for you growing up as a little girl? So, in the beginning, I had a very normal childhood, which – Middle class, right? Blonde hair, blue eyed. Yeah. One to two kids. Um, I have a younger sister. She's two years younger than me. And our life was really pretty good. It, the abuse didn't actually start for me till I was eight. And when it started, like I really didn't have words for it. I didn't know how to explain it. And when it first started, it wasn't, um, 
it wasn't scary. Like there's this grooming process that happens, and unfortunately, I was led through that. So I, I didn't really realize how wrong it was. When I did realize how wrong it was, I was about twelve, mm-hmm. and I I still didn't really have words for it, how to explain it. But I was starting to fight against it, and um, was starting to try to get help. This was back in the. 80s yeah right they didn't right. have the internet they didn't, right it wasn't talked about no cell phones right right and there was always this perception that se- sexual abuse incest molestation didn't happen to families like ours right because like you happen. you were the people next door the all-american people that were just being right. normal right exactly so when you look at our family from the outside you just you would never see it even though i thought everybody could mm-hmm. <laughs> you definitely couldn't so um, something happened around that same time my parents got divorced. And it was just a, you know, a lot happened at one single time. My parents divorced when I was 12. Um, they got joint custody. My mother eventually got remarried. She moved halfway across the country. To Guam? To Guam, yeah. yes. She married um, a military man and moved there. And... Um, <laughs> I always tell people, and I, I don't know how to explain it. I do have a degree in psychology, but I don't. Un- I still don't <laughs> understand. Um, a lot of times I was more angry with my mother than I was with my father. Well, I was going to ask you about that, Stacy, because in, in the house, um, you know, did you feel like even that, and I can't remember if you'd actually told, I know the babysitter knew and, a, and, a, and a, maybe a counselor or a psychologist or psychiatrist knew, but... Did your mom know? No. 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 I felt like she did. You felt like she did, right. He told me that she did, but she didn't. And one thing that I think people need to really understand is my mom was abused herself Mm -hmm. by her father. I read that. And so when she would confront my dad, he would tell her that she was just being crazy. He'd never do that. Right. She never really saw any outright signs. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, she never asked either. Right. Right. So probably as a defense mechanism probably. because it would have been a lot for her to deal with because she had gone through that herself. Probably. And maybe she did feel, and how do you have those conversations? You know, as a society, we're getting a lot better. Mm-hmm. We're erasing the shame. We're um, empowering our children by teaching them the right words. But we didn't have that back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like to think we're evolving as a society and and moving moving in a positive direction. It still exists. Yeah. But hopefully someday we'll eradicate it. I'm curious how, so when this was going on and then, you know, at 12 years old, you're like, this, this is, this is awful. This is, I, I know it's not right. How was it affecting you in the rest of your world? Like school, friends coming over, you going over to sleep at their house. Did everything, were you living two separate worlds? Not at 12, because at 12, my parents were in the middle of that divorce. Okay. So it's more about being bounced back and forth by them. Um, and being taken from what we had known and being moved into different neighborhoods, different, like when my parents divorced, we moved, you know, we moved out of the house we were in. And before that we were living in like rural Illinois. Mm -hmm. So we had three acres. We didn't have. It felt different. I I was very alone as a child. Um, and then when I got older, when I was 12, and they, di- they started to divorce. We, 
I just, I never really had those friendships where I'd really spend the night or, I mean, occasionally. I really don't remember a lot of it. I wish I did. Yeah. (laughs) Well, but you said a lot of things started to change along those timelines and your dad started drinking a lot more. Yes. Because that wasn't necessarily part of your life up to that point in that world that you didn't notice so much that he almost was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personality when he drank. Correct. So it was probably more prevalent than what I realized because he only, like every time that there was some kind of abuse, he smelled like alcohol, Mm -hmm. right? Like you'd smell it. And to me, his features would change and he would morph and he felt like a completely different person. So like I would separate him in my mind. This is my dad. This is Tom. Mm. And that's how I survived through it. Like almost pretending it didn't happen. I read something, Stacy, and I can't remember which article it was, but it was talking about how you divided those two people where he had blue eyes as the nice guy and his those blue eyes turned like to ice, almost like an eerie, scary look. And... I just can't imagine for you that when, when all this was happening as a, as a a child, basically is what you were, I mean, at 12, 13, 14 years old, you're just figuring out all the other things. And then you're having to figure out this gigantic thing that nobody really talks about. And you were alone and your sister didn't know about it. Um, And I think from what I understand is your sister didn't know about it until when all that happened more around that time that your dad was killed. Is that right? Correct. So that's interesting because I've got three daughters and I, I, you know, they are there and I I can tell that you and your sister are really close. So that had to be a heck of a thing that was a dividing line that you wouldn't cross in that world of not talking about that thing. So I think for me, it was more about just protecting her and making sure that she was okay or that she didn't have to go through it, right? Like, I don't know how to really explain. You know, family dynamics are all unique in their own. They are. And so before the divorce ever even happened, there was like almost this fracture in the household. And, you know, like I said, when the abuse first started, it it wasn't necessarily negative. Like, it didn't didn't hurt, wasn't painful, Mm -hmm. I wasn't scared. And I actually thought it was something special Mm -hmm. between my dad and I. And my sister was more my mom's favorite. Mm -hmm. So we kind of already had that little internal split. And it just always remained. So the you went away and went to live with your mom. So your sister stayed with your dad. So not, that's almost accurate. Um, What happened was when I was 17, I got really sick and I had to go to the hospital. Um, They did an exploratory surgery and I had pelvic inflammatory disease. And so everything changed Mm -hmm. after that because then I found out I could no longer have Children, do you discard fallopian tubes? Which is something that you said and that you always wanted. I as, did, because yes. I imagined, you know, I daydreamed a lot, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Like, anytime my life was really 
rough or painful, I'd just kind of create this little safe space. Imaginary world. Yeah. yeah. And someday I'm going to have my own family and I'm going to have a baby that I'm going to name this mm-hmm. and, you know, be married and have a happy family. So when I found out I couldn't have children, it was actually pretty devastating. My sister hadn't been living with my father and I. She was living with an aunt. Okay. So when I started getting sick, she went and stayed with the aunt, my mom's sister. And so I felt like she was safe. Was she aware of what happened to you? Like this devastating news? I'm not certain. I mean, she might have known, but then I don't think she really ever knew. Mm Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain. It sounds like we weren't close. but we No, were no, like, I can tell that by reading, and, and I, I, that's why I think it's interesting. I, it sounds like you were very close, and I think that's the thing, the struggle that I, f- I feel like that's something sisters do try to protect each other. You know, that my, my daughters would go to war and back for, for each other. So I get that. Being close doesn't mean that you won't tell something to somebody because you're trying to protect them, and that that information could be uh, not just disturbing, but could could devastate them. So I, I get that. And I don't think it was necessarily like a rational thought, yeah. right? That oh, we're not going to discuss this. I mean, she knew I was in the hospital. She knew I had been sick. Yeah. But we had more surface. Dis- I guess our relationship was more just not deep conversations, mm-hmm. right? Because I don't think we knew how to have those. Right. We do now. Yeah. But we didn't at that time. So I don't think we even really necessarily knew how to access our emotions to talk about it. Like, I just couldn't. So she was with my aunt. I went and lived with my mother. And I was hoping, I don't know, there was definitely some type of fracture for me. Because mm-hmm, you didn't. You, you said you didn't feel welcomed when you went over to see your mom. You, you felt like you were kind of an imposter. I did. Like, it was just, it was a hard, it was a hard moment. You know, I expect my mom to be there. Yeah. And my mom has spent the last several years growing and changing into somebody else. Right. And we didn't really know each other. Plus you add this other person into the mix, which was my stepfather. Mm-hmm. And we just, at the time we weren't. What close. was that like with the stepfather? It was very uncomfortable. Yeah. It was very uncomfortable because I think I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like I never trusted him. Yeah. I never really spoke to him. I was never kind to him. He's not somebody I wanted in my life. Right. Here's the man that moved my mother halfway across. I was angry. Yeah. I was, I was very angry. Was he in the military? Yes. Okay. Well, that's, that makes sense then. Right. So yeah. we never really had that relationship. We just never did. Um, we do now. And a large part of it is because when I went to trial, he was the only person that sat in that courtroom every day. Your every stepfather? Day. My stepfather. Really? Mm-hmm. When they put me back on the plane to come back home, my stepdad looked at my mom and he said, I feel like we really failed her. And oh. so I came back home. I came back to St. Louis about April 15th, April 17th. And then wound up catching a case July 4th. So my sister had moved back in with my dad while I was in Guam. Yeah. And while I was there, she had skipped a lot of school, mm-hmm. a lot of school. So I went there in January. She moved in. She moved back with my dad like the week after I left. She thought he, her and he would have a different relationship without me being there. Okay. Like I, 
she wanted to be closer to him. Right. But she because she'd always kind of been more close to your, closer to your mom. Correct. Yeah. And my father wasn't physically abusive towards me. He was physically abusive towards my sister. Interesting. Yes. So my sister, um, my sister was a bit of a challenge <laughs> growing up. Yeah. Like she, you know, she'd fight back a lot to where I was the quiet one and I mm-hmm. took it and I tried to smooth everything over. Um, and so her and my dad just really didn't get along and my dad would hit her. And hit her when he was drunk or not drunk. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, more so when he was drunk. But, you know, there came a time towards the end when he was almost never It didn't matter. Drunk. He was drunk most of the time. Yes, unfortunately. So, Stacy, this day of July 4th is unbelievable because I didn't realize until I started reading background on this that there were shots fired, was it the day of? It was actually like Be- July 3rd. Okay, July 3rd, but I didn't realize any of that. So you had... You had come in to town. Uh, there was a, there was an argument, and and you guys, you you and your sister march out of the the house, angry, and you're trying to pull her away from this bad situation of the dad, and you you're gonna go back in and tell him, you know, you sob this and stay, and we don't want you, and all this, and and when you go to knock on the door, you. You, your defenses kind of go down to where you're not going to do that. You go to and start sobbing, laying on the couch, and you hear some that's shots? Not, no, that's not quite how it happened. Okay. So we, um, my birthday was May 28th. Okay. And I felt like when I was 18 years old that. So you world. can't believe everything you read. <laughs> it's close. It's close. It's just a little off. But it's, the, you um, know, that's the thing about the, these stories and that they're written. Right. There's usually a nugget of truth in there somewhere. Yes. And it's, it's very, very close. Yeah. So um, when I was, when I turned 18, like I felt like. So this is May 28th. Correct. Yeah. Okay. May 28th. I was like, okay, so now I'm 18. This is going to stop. Like, yeah. You feel, I felt like I would be empowered. Empowered. Just because I would be an adult. Sure. Right. Like. I don't know, all of a sudden I had superhuman powers or something. So, um, Plus, there had to be a lot of just built-up aggression about the fact that you, you had wanted to have kids, and this is this it was kind of taken away from you, and the whole thing of that has to be brewing. I don't think it was. I, I really don't think it was. It, was, it might have been somewhere on the, back, the back burner, but yeah. it was more about getting out. Okay. How do I get out? How do I get out? Because I never really expected to find myself back. I thought when I went to live with my mother, that would be it. Mm-hmm. You know, my sister would be at my aunt's. I'd be with my mom. I'd go to college. I'd never really have be to fine. be living back with him again. Um, but my sister had skipped school, had made him mad. And he wanted my sister to actually come live with us in Guam. And my mom said no. She didn't want both of us. Because I was a handful. I'm mm-hmm. not going to lie. I'm, I mean, I, I was a handful. So I felt like, well, I'll go home and then he'll send Christy. And then once she goes to Guam, then I'm almost 18. I'm going to be 18 next month, then I can leave. And then when I got there, my sister didn't want to leave. She didn't want to go live with my mom, which I understand Mm -hmm. because I had felt, I didn't feel, it wasn't like it should have been. Yeah. Right. So. And then my dad was fine as long as I was back, because then I could take care of her. 
So that's kind of what we fell into. And the closer I came to 18, the more, I don't want to say rebellious, but the more I pushed back against the abuse. Like, no, this isn't going to happen, right? Like, I'm, I'm almost an adult. You can't do this to me anymore. Mm-hmm. So when I was over on my 18th birthday, it fell close to Memorial Day weekend, and I had went away for the weekend. Didn't even tell him where I was going. <laughs> came back in, like, shortly after the weekend. He was very upset, very, very upset, and I had brought a dog home. So on July 3rd, I was taking my dog. My sister and I were supposed to go to the VP fair with friends, and I was taking my dog outside, this little puppy, before we left. And the puppy pottied on the floor right in front of my dad. Mm. And, you know, I was kind of proud of the puppy. Like, <laughs> like yeah, I understand. Mm-hmm. I understand that's what you think. Um, but he got really mad. And he told me that the puppy had to go. And I was like, that's fine. Well, well I'll go. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was like, nope, you can go. The puppy can go. But she stays. And he pointed to my sister who had walked in somewhere behind me. And I was like, that is not going to happen. We're all leaving, right? So that's where that altercation came in at. And we had, we had some words then. And he went and... He went and grabbed my sister and took her, well, before he did that, he pulled the phones out of the wall because he thought, thought I was going to call my mother. I'm not really I'm not really sure why he pulled the phones. Mm. Um, and then he grabbed my sister and took her in his room. And I couldn't get in. I ran outside. I The windows were just high enough. I mean, I'm short. I'm five foot. <laughs> I'm five foot one and a half, although I claim five foot two. And... You know, I remember trying to beat on it, trying to get in, and I couldn't. And, you know, here I am in the middle of a subdivision, Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, it doesn't even dawn on me to go next door or to just start screaming. I mean, I'm screaming out in the middle of my lawn. Yeah. And, you know, there's a house probably. I can't even begin to tell you how many feet away just next door that I could have probably went up to the door and knocked and mm-hmm. I didn't. And I think part of that was just that aloneness. Like mm. I, I felt like nobody would ever come, nobody would ever help. And I walked back inside and I, I still don't know what happened in that room. My sister and I to this day still have not sat down and actually spoken about it. Like I've heard her tell stories. I've heard her talk to other people, but her and I have never really, Together, talked about it. Together, right. Which we probably need to do through therapy someday. But she walked out of that room, and when she walked out of that room, she just didn't look. She looked changed, Mm. right? And I could have been, I could have been reading into it. I don't know. Um, But we were supposed to get friends. And, like, I remember just kind of touching her face and being like, are you okay? Let's, let's go. And, but I wasn't, I wasn't together, right? Like, my, I couldn't think. I couldn't really even breathe. So I gave her my car keys, and she went and picked up her friend. And then she was supposed to come back and get me, which she wasn't old enough to drive. 
<laughs> just drive anyway. Right? I used to do that a lot. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I used to give her my car at night so that she could go out and be safe. Yeah. Right? She actually got arrested oh. for it. Um, Great. Right? <laughs> but so then she, so that then when that happened, like I went to go downstairs. I was laying on the couch. And then that's when I heard I heard a pop. Didn't even I, it didn't even dawn on me that it was a shot. And I look up and there's my dad standing with this. It was a twenty two, and shot, and shot. And but I didn't really know it at the time. And you know, then he just said a bunch of hateful things. And he'd always has he uh, had he ever done anything like that before with no. guns and rifles and stuff? No. Like, I didn't even no. I mean, that to me would just be the most startling thing, Stacy. is you but all of a sudden look up and your dad has shot a, a twenty-two, and it was not, I mean, he wasn't trying to hit you, but it was in your direction. Right. He didn't know because he shot through a door, like a wall yeah. thing, and he could have hit anything. Jeez. But, but our whole, for the last month, everything had been escalating. Yeah. Like, he would talk about how he could kill us. Mm. And it would be an accident or, but, and just describe different ways, right? And so. Did he also, I, I meant to ask you, when you were, when you were younger, Stacy, did he put a fear in you that you couldn't really talk or you would get, he would do something to you if you said something to somebody about it? Or was that just something you built on? I think it was something that I built in. Yeah. Right? Like. I think that as I got older and I pushed back, then mm-hmm. came the threats, but they weren't right away. Yeah. It was more they know and they don't care. Right? right. And then instances happened where we did, where I did see him be violent. Like he would hit my sister or um, one time he ran over our family cat, mm. killed our cat with us in the car. Like just, and I'm certain they came about, but they didn't come about they didn't accompany the beginning of the abuse. Mm-hmm. But part of that was I didn't realize it was wrong. Right. right. Like it was more after, like for the first six months or so, it was just touch. There mm-hmm. was no actual rape. After the rapes, that's when the threat started. And mm. I can't really tell you exactly when that was. I'd have to think about it. And truthfully, I don't allow myself well, to. Well, I, I, I was just curious if that was something that you also had to bear. But it sounds like you, you had enough to bear that it was just a, a wall. And you were you felt alone and, and you didn't feel like there was a whole army out there that was going to help you with oh, yeah. the situation. Okay, so let's go to the nightmare night. <laughs> so my sister and I, my sister did come back. I, I wound up leaving with her. And we left and we went to the fair. And, you know, somehow we acted like absolutely nothing had happened. We went out to eat. Just having a good time. We had a, right. We just it's Jan- July 4th. Everybody's having a good time. July 3rd. Oh, July 3rd. Right. But it's still, it's that weekend. Right. And I still, I don't really know how we, how we were able to do that. Right. But we did. Yeah. And. Um, Compartmentalized. Yeah. I think we had been doing that for so long mm-hmm. that you just kind of get used to it Mm -hmm. and you can have this horrific thing happen and 10 minutes later you act like it never did Mm -hmm. right because you have to survive right and I I try to make sense of it and I just can't and I tell people you know there is 
there isn't a lot of logic when you're just trying to survive, mm-hmm. right? And really, that's what we were trying to do is just survive. Right, survive. So we went to the fair. We came back to the house. We pulled up. It's about, I don't even know what time it was, probably 11. And I'm thinking, I, I just don't want to walk in that door. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't want to go back in there. And because I can't, I can't. Like, if we go back in there, we'll probably never get out, mm-hmm. right? Like, so we actually went to a hotel, and we were there for a little while, and we're laying down, and we're trying to go to sleep. And as I'm laying there, I'm thinking, okay, what do we need to leave? Mm-hmm. What do we need to leave? Because we don't have anything. We just have the clothes on our back and my car keys, which is actually the car was in my father's name, not even in my name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, well, we need some clothes we need right maybe we have to get clothes my dog I, my puppy still where there. is your dog she was back at the house okay and i thought how could i just leave her there i got to get her i don't necessarily i can get more clothes i can get a job but Did i get the dog can't leave her with him because he'll kill her and i believe that with every mm-hmm. being in my heart so um we returned to the house and my sister stay outside and the dog had peed on the the floor so yeah you could be thinking that he might do something to the no, dog. no i mean he would i mean he'd kick it he'd yeah. threaten it yeah he was angry about yeah. it being home. he didn't want dogs right which you know i i did i just wanted something to love right like i'm too old for stuffed animals and um which is a little bit of foreshadowing uh, later on in your life <laughs> <laughs> so we we wound up going back and um i came in through the bedroom window so the basement was pretty much um, I know it sounds weird to come through a window, but if the doors were, we had the front door and the back door, and those were both on the main floor. So if I'd come through either of the doors, it would have woke them up. Mm-hmm. So we actually would come and go through our bedroom's window. Um, so hopefully we didn't didn't wake him. But once I got in the house, I thought I heard him. And that gun was, like, just left in the corner. Mm-hmm. So I picked it up and went upstairs because now now I am upset, right? Like, now everything's coming back, and I don't want to be here. Mm-hmm. And I, de- I want to leave. I just want to leave. And so I get up there, and he's passed out, passed out. And, you know, I wish I could tell you exactly what emotions I was feeling, but I just, I can't. I don't know if it was just pure anger, pure fear, a combination of all of it. Um, But I, there was a ledge behind the couch and I set that, I set the gun on the ledge and I just closed my eyes and pulled the trigger. And I didn't deliver a fatal shot. It actually shot him in the shoulder and he sat up and was calling my name. And, you know, when he did that, like just, I still feel the nausea. And not not over him calling my name, but over what I had just done, right? Like the full force of it just kind of hit me all at one time. And I remembered thinking, um, I just, I got to get him help. I got to get him help. And so I threw open the front door. I flipped on the porch light. And I went to find a phone but the f- 
bones were all gone. Because he'd pulled them out earlier. Yeah. Because he had pulled them out earlier, and he had hid them in his bedroom. And I didn't know that till long after mm-hmm. I had been charged. But I'm, I'm frantic, frantic. Not, not just because of what happened, but all of it. I guess all of it was just too overwhelming. It was too much, too much. Um, and then he got angry, and he started cussing and calling me and my sister all kinds of names. And I remembered thinking, if he gets up, we're dead. Mm. We're dead. And so I shot him the second time, and then he then he passed. So you, I can't imagine. I mean that that's that, that moment has to be something that. Oh, it's painful. It still is to this day, and it was how many years ago? How for forty or thirty some years ago? Yeah, yeah. Like it's. it's what was your, what were your what was your immediate? I mean, I'm sure everything was blurry. What did you think? What am I going to do now? No, there was there was no thought. It's like taking a deep breath and holding it, and just not being able to breathe. Not breathing. Not breathing. And what did you do right then? Where, where did I, you go? You know, somehow, like I must have gathered stuff up, went back to the car, mm-hmm. and we went back to the hotel. And I don't remember any of now it. Your sister was where? She was outside. She was outside. So she, you come out frantic, gather the stuff, so we're getting out of here. And so then you're. I'm sure you're telling her what all happened and... No, you're just driving. Just driving. Just driving. Very blank. Like you, ha- like I, you know, maybe it's your my brain's way of protecting mm-hmm. my psyche, but there was no, there was no rational thought, period, in that moment or for hours afterwards. Like, I think it would almost be the same as if you witnessed like a horrific crash Mm -hmm. and just trying to wrap your brain around it. And I remember the next day thinking, I've got to get help. I've got to, I've got to get help. I've got to tell somebody. And so I did. I actually went to somebody who I thought was a friend and they gave me way wrong advice, (laughs) but I would have followed anybody's lead at any time right there. But I remember driving and I remember thinking, people are still going to work. The sun is shining. How is it possible that the sun is shining when this, all this happened? How can, how can there be anything that even looks or feels normal, right? Like, how, how is this possible? And It's like you're in your own bubble. Yeah, and... I don't, I don't, I still, you know, I can't explain it. I can't make anybody else explain, understand it. It's, um, your brain kicks in and does something to protect you. And I think that's kind of what happened in this case. And somehow I just kind of stumbled through, stumbled through the next couple hours, the next day, um, tried to follow what the person told me to do, which was stupid. Like I should have just called the police. Mm Mm-hmm. Had I had a phone, I would have called the police. Because mm, you would have had it on you. And just 
done it. Right. Well, and had the phones not been pulled out of the mm-hmm. wall, that was I was definitely calling the police. Um, and I should have just been honest from the very beginning, mm-hmm. but I don't think I knew how to be right honest. I didn't know how to access what had happened. Right. right. You were still dealing with that. Oh, the trauma. Yeah. It like it really, really took me years to be able to process what would happen what happened. And it's kinda unfair in our criminal legal system that we want people to be able to talk about what happened immediately and you know, like when you give your confession, mm-hmm. right? You expect somebody to be able to access all that horror that they just went through. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, some of it might have been that person created it, but your psyche really needs time to process Process and to access it because you just shut down. And and I think it's a matter of self-protection, or at least it was for me. Mm -hmm. It was a matter of self-protection. And unfortunately, I had been just shutting down for years. Mm -hmm. so Maybe not even recognizing it. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea I was doing it. Absolutely right. none. Like, it took a lot to learn when I was getting ready to go into that kind of fugue and make sure I didn't go go there, right? Like, mm-hmm. learning how to heal. Um, but, yeah, I still don't – I don't think I could have really accessed everything that had happened for a long time afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then when we were talking about it, You know, when I was able to kind of access a little bit and process some of it, um, it's not that I wasn't believed. Some people believed me, but... Your detective did. He did. Yeah. Thank thank God. First man on the scene. Excuse me. Thank God for that, because... Who ended up playing a bigger and bigger role in your life absolutely because if it wasn't for him i'd still be i'd probably still be decomposing in the cell Mm -hmm. so um you know and he just when when we were there he was like you you have to tell me what happened so that we understand Mm -hmm. and he said i i think there's more there and he said because when i asked you if your father hit you 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 cried Mm-hmm. And I know you want to tell me. And, you know, I told him what I could, which was, well, he didn't hit me. You know, my father raped me, mm-hmm. right? But I didn't use the words raped. I would say molested or touched. Um, and I think the detective really just, he got it. And he was a specialist somewhat in that field. He was, yeah. and I did not. I did not know that. Yeah. But but I he was I was able to talk to him some. But he never um he wasn't called to testify at my trial. That's the whole thing with the can you walk us through now that you're an attorney because there's there's things that happened in your defense that were left out um you know, the, there was the battered uh, spouse uh, syndrome. syndrome. There were some other things that uh, could have been giving you more of a defense. Um, obviously, he wasn't called uh, as a witness, no, he wasn't. which would have been uh, incredibly different. 
Uh, and there were a couple of jurors afterwards that found that without their jury instructions and what they had gotten, that they would have obviously have felt a lot different about what had happened. What, how did you feel like as the as this trial was going on? I'm sure you were dealing with all kinds of different emotions because you, you're having to relive this whole thing day to day to day. Uh, it's an un- unusual, um, unfamiliar situation being in a courtroom with them uh, wanting to convict you of, of murder. Um, how, was how were you? How were you dealing? and coping at that moment with going through all that. Not well. Yeah. (laughs) Not well at all. You know, I don't mean to make light of it, but I just started taking some psychiatric meds shortly before trial. Mm -hmm. They weren't even something that I wanted, but it was something that the jail had put me on. And you got to take them to, I, it took 800, took about 800 days before I actually went to trial. And even then, I didn't receive any counseling. So you were in the county jail all the time, jail. which is the worst. It was called gumbo. Yeah. And we I don't know if you people understand that there's a big difference between county jail and prison. Right. Big difference. Huge. So county jail is just it's the you're bottom. locked down 23 hours a day. Yeah. We, where w- I was, we did get to get out for meals. Like, we'd go to meals, but that was it. And breakfast was always served at, like, 5, so I never went to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was locked in, it was more like pods than there was no cells. So the smallest amount of people that I was locked in a room with was 11 other women. And then there was a hallway and there'd be another 11 women or 12 women over on the other side. So you're never alone. You're never, you're, you're just, it was a lot. Was your stuff on the news? Like while you were in jail? Yeah. But it wasn't, um, I'm sure it was. But there weren't other people just sitting and watching the news and saying, oh, my gosh, that's Stacy." Maybe, but I didn't. You weren't even in, plugged into it. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because um, I still, that was my way of coping was still to shut down. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, through my trial, I was just shut down. You were totally shut down. Completely. Did you feel like with your attorney that you through this process did he did he believe that he was going to get you beyond this and not be convicted of this crime for life without parole so i think he never really saw a jury convicting me of mm-hmm. life without parole especially when we were able to introduce some of the things that happened mm-hmm. <clears throat> but i still really wasn't at a point where I could verbalize, mm-hmm. right? Like, same thing. Like, I could barely talk about it. Because to me, you say the word touch, and it means something completely different than what somebody else sure. would think. You know, like if I said my dad touched me, right? that means a horror that most people cannot even begin to understand. Right. Um, and I, like I said, when we went to trial, I hadn't had therapy. I hadn't had counseling. Mm-hmm. And my attorney was a guy, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's a man, it's not like he and I sat down and had in-depth conversations about some of the things I went through. Sure. No, we probably had 20-minute meetings in the law library a couple times, mm-hmm. you know, here and there. And my attorney did the best job he could. He actually really did a good job. Um, the law was just brand new at that time. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we didn't really access what the abuse really meant. 
Um, but it really didn't matter because there was still the, you have to get over the hump. Like I had to get over the traditional self-defense hump of immediate, immediate aggression, imminent and immediate danger. And so because my father was passed out, I wasn't in immediate danger, even though in my brain I am. Sure. Because he'd been an aggressor at eight years old. Right. Forward. Right. But in that instance, I was considered the initial aggressor. Yeah. Now the laws looked at a little bit differently, and they said, well, who is really the initial aggressor? Mm-hmm. But at that time, it was me. Um, and so, yeah. I, you know, I can't imagine the, the, what I was thinking when I was reading through that um, back and forth between the, the judge and then the, the circuit court and then they, how they reluctantly went with it. But I was starting to think, you know, like if I was, if I captured you, and I was ki- I kidnapped you, and, and you're held hostage, and I've raped you or physically abused you or whatever, and then I fall asleep, and you kill me, it seems like that would be what you would do to get away, to get away from the captor. But it wasn't taken like that. No, it wasn't. And part of it was... Um, the prosecutor did not believe there was abuse. No, to this day. <laughs> to this day. To this day. Um, yes. And he's adamant. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, time time after time after time, you see uh, guys that, oh, I was talking to you about it earlier, the, the guys up in Michigan that served 28 years and 20 years and whatever. But that is so, so hard for that prosecutor to say, no, we – we actually put somebody in prison that wasn't supposed to be there, but it, it's it's a it's a weird phenomenon. And you know, every I always say everybody's entitled to their opinion, and um, he just he did not believe abuse was there because they do have discretion, and mm-hmm. he could have charged down right. And I was offered a plea bargain, but I would have to say I did it for money, right? And I just wasn't willing to do that. So it was kind of difficult for me to understand how they could offer me a life sentence if I was willing to do it for money. But when I when I own my truth and I took it to trial, then I wind up with life without parole. Yeah. <laughs> First degree murder, right? Like I knew that if I had taken that life sentence and just pled it out, that I would never be able to look at myself again. Yeah. Right? Like this is all I have. Right. This is all I have. I have nothing else. Except what except you except for my truth, your truth, my truth, and I I have got to stand. You can't on give it. that away. No, because I I literally had nothing else. So, you know, I wasn't good at articulating it. I wasn't good at expressing it. But I felt like there would be hope someday farther down, right? Like somewhere. And um, so you didn't lose hope. That's what I was going to ask you because. What does what does a brain think when it hears you are going to prison forever? You're going to die in prison without parole. I mean, I hear you say you still had hope. Mm-hmm. So the hope was is somehow, some way, I'm going to have and get someone to understand. And when they understand, it won't be this way. So there wasn't a lot of that thought process going on. It was more still just survival. Mm-hmm. Like, I've got to get through today. I've got to get through tomorrow. I've yep. got to just get through. So Survive like the even day. when I heard that pronouncement, I don't think it really actually dawned on me 
life that pro means that it was forever. Right. Like I always felt like, I don't know. Like it's just, it's not right. This isn't right. And it's not going to remain right. Like once people understand it will change. So that, (laughs) that understanding came a little later, Mm -hmm. but in the beginning it was just survive today. Right. Survive today. So when, and I guess your attorney probably said, hey, listen, this isn't the end. I'm going to, you know, there's other ways that we can go with this and whatever, whatever. But in the meantime, you're getting ready and are going to walk into prison. And as far as you know, you you are dubbed as life without parole. What was it like for you to, and I'm not sure, what prison did you go to with the My first one was um, Friends Farm. Okay. In Jefferson City. Jeff so, City? Yeah. Yeah. So I was actually just really glad to be at prison. I really was. like Away from the county jail away environment. Away from the county jail and the noise, constant noise. What was your first day like going into that, to a prison? So, I mean, it, it did suck. We had our jail. <laughs> I mean, all of it sucks. Yeah, but, of course it does. <laughs> right. But it really wasn't that terrible, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, you... I don't know how to explain it. I always tell people I felt freer in prison than I ever felt walking in my own front door. Yeah. Because at least this is how this is supposed to be, right? Like this makes This is a sense. structured environment that right. you know the, the rules this, are given to you and you exactly. live within it. Yeah. And you know what the rules are and you know what you can do and what you can't do. Right. You know what's going to get you in trouble, what's not going to get you in trouble. When you live with an abusive alcoholic, walking through your front door is not Anything like that. Anything can happen. Anything. You just look wrong or... F- flip your hair wrong and the next thing you know it's bad Mm -hmm. right so um prison prison wasn't terrible it it is i had people had told me when we were in jail how it would be so i kind of expected it you Mm -hmm. know it's still humiliating oh yeah yeah because you got to go you got to be strip searched you got to be like Mm deliced you know they all that stuff's very humiliating and it's almost like prisonizing you know they they as you walk through, I always say that I felt like my freedom was shedding off my skin. Like everything that I did from that gate to the point where they put those weird clothes on me, I had gone through these layers of feeling different about I am in. Mm-hmm. I'm in now. I'm not out. I'm in. But my whole thing was is I can't lose who I am. So I, I, I consciously every day tried to continue to try to be me by doing things that I would do on the outside, but pretend like I was, you know, in a different type of environment, but, you know, get a good prison job, you know, read all these books, get in really good shape, but don't fall into being institutionalized. That's what always scared me to death was those guys that had just given up. And I didn't really know all that. And I didn't know who I was on the outside. Right. Like I knew who, well, you say in, that you found yourself I did in prison. Yeah, well, because I had to grow up. Yeah. Right? And I'm able to grow up without the, without terror. Like, Were you basically, what, 20 years old walking into prison? Uh-huh. Yeah. I had my 21st birthday. While I was 21st there. birthday in prison. Yeah, it's not how I ever imagined my 21st birthday to be. But Did you find people helping you as you came in? Yeah. I did. You know, you have the motherly figures yeah. and... And what what I really found... That was always a surprise to me, Stacy. You know, your mind, you know, it, nothing as bad as your mind makes it out to be, not even prison. But I was, 
I thought that there was like these wolves at the gate, you know, that they were going to, when I walked through there, I was going to be attacked and I was immediately helped. Yes. And it, it just was like, oh, okay. I mean, not that there was some bad people, but for the most part, there was some really good people. Yes. And, and when I say that, I'm talking to people that are outside of prison, they're like, really? I said, no, really? Right. right. And I would say the majority of, I would say the majority of women who are incarcerated have been through some kind of abuse, yeah. be it sexual, emotional, physical. And so there was really a community there that, you know, for the first time ever in my life, I don't have to hide what's happening inside my home, yep. right? I Transparent. Don't, yes. Yeah. I don't have to pretend like we're this perfect little family and I'm this perfect little person. Mm-hmm. Um, it is what it is at this point. And so I made friends, and I learned what was important to me and what wasn't important to me, and I learned to find my voice, and I learned healing. And, you know, I always tell people, I found freedom while I was incarcerated. In prison. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be an interesting title of a book, wouldn't it? Right. So when you did that, um, how did you – like, what were your strategies to live in that environment? Were you, were you looking for work or you were no, reading I, books? Well, like, what did you do? I, don't know, I think I just... Or what were you thinking you needed to do to be the, this finding you had, how you came to that? So, actually, I kind of just fell into it. Okay. Um, and let me explain that a little bit. So, when I was being evaluated for before trial... I had a psychiatrist or psychologist, I don't, one of those two. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the Courage to Heal workbook. And they told me that it was part of my evaluation, which it wasn't. It was really from therapy for me because I wasn't receiving any. Okay. And going through that workbook was some of the hardest things that I had ever done, you know, because you have to face truths and you have to face realities and you have to face emotions Mm -hmm. that I had never faced. You just buried them. Right, right, that I had shut down, that mm-hmm. I had just zombied through somehow. Um, so that helped me some. Like, it helped me. It did help some. Um, and when I got to Chillicothe, not Old Rents, but Chillicothe, a couple years later, some lady, a volunteer, came in and gave, an, uh, gave a class, and it was the Courage to Heal class. And oh, I, wow. I took the class, and... I can't even begin to explain it because this time I'm not doing the book alone and giving the giving the assignments like as an assignment and never hearing feedback. Now mm. there's other people who went through the same thing. Like we can discuss it. They encourage. They support. And that was just life-altering, life-altering. And in the, ma- in the meantime, like I'm just living through prison, right? Like I'm at my job. I'm. I do sports, I, mm. whatever, mm. but it was really more, I just lived. I just lived. That you felt like you, I guess what I'm hearing is, is that you were living open. Yes. And that was the biggest change for you is everything that you had buried was, you were living your life in an open way that you could just be you. Yes. And I'm not, um, yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting because, I mean, you're in prison, so you're having <laughs> to live through that whole environment. But you found yourself as feeling like you found some comfort in the fact that you were in an environment where you could be you and there was nothing you had to hide. Right. 
That's the interesting thing about prison. I think it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's primitive, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, you have to, you know, be respectful. You know, you, you can't do things to people or that, you know, causes trouble. I mean, there's the, the only reason why there's drama is usually when somebody's not respecting somebody in right. prison. Respect is huge. And you have to be willing, you have to be willing to stand up for what you believe in, mm -hmm. right? And even if that's just your sense of self, like by that I mean if it's my time in the washer and somebody would try to take my spot, I yeah. have to be willing to be yeah. like, oh, no, <laughs> right? Um, so you, f you really, you can find yourself, you can find your voice, or you can bury it. Right? Because yeah. once again, it's about survival. It is. But but I didn't have that fear. I don't know. Like, I think part of it was with my dad. You know, he'd explained so many times about how he could kill us and just get away with it. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, or turn it to where we were the bad people. Mm -hmm. So even in prison, like, say something happened when I was there and say something terrible would happen. Like, uh, nothing ever did. But say something did happen, they would have investigated and it would have came out like the truth. The truth was there, mm -hmm. right? And I think once you own your truth and you stand on it, like there's a power in there. There's a power in it. Yep. And that, that's the difference between of being a victim and a survivor, I think. Correct. Correct. With your dad's situation, um, did you grieve? Oh, yeah. So you grieved all that. Oh, my gosh. It was, you know, it's, and that's that's the hardest part because no matter, there's not always just hate, right? Mm -hmm. There's love also. Right. So there's love, there's hate, there's fear, there's, here's the person that if somebody else hurts you, they're going to pick up that sword and they're going to defend you, right? Mm -hmm. This is the person that loved me more than anybody else, but also hurt me more, more than, than anybody, anybody else. else, right? And that's deep. It is. And when I was such a young age, my brain didn't know how to process it. Hence the splitting in the two. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the only way I survived it. Like I completely separated it from what I lived through daily to survive. Yes. Cause I don't think I could have otherwise. I when really don't. After being in there and, and basically learning to survive and, and, more or less finding yourself and, and finding really comfortable with who you were because everything was more open to who you could be. When did things start turning for you that on the legal side that this could actually be something that could happen and you're not life in prison? How did that all transpire for you? So every time you file an appeal, you have hope, right? Like somebody's going to look at this and be like, oh, this is Yeah, this is good. It reads really good. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so you always have that hope every time. Um, I had a new public defender. She was my appellate attorney. Her name's Ellen. And she came up to Chillicothe one day and pretty much sat me down and was like, we're never going to win an appeal. The law's just not on your side. So the whole immediate. Mm, that doesn't feel good. Right. <laughs> The whole immediate day, like we'd never get over the hump that we needed to get over um, to change the law. It actually did change a few years later, mm -hmm. but we were never going to win an appeal. And so Ellen had said, I'd really like 
to handle a clemency for you. And I kind of knew what that was, but I really didn't know. A lot of people don't because they think of pardon. Right. Well, clemency is the overall term, right? And then clemency can break down into different categories. So what she was wanting to do for me was to request a commutation, which would be to commute my sentence. Mm -hmm. So means you're done. It means we're we're taking your sentence from not done, but it means that you're done with the life without parole to whatever you could get. Correct. So all we were asking for was let's remove the without parole and give me just life sentence, right? Opportunity. Absolutely. So we started that journey like in 1998 and figured out how to file it. She put together this petition, gathered information, and um, something something was happening at the law schools at the same time. They had put together a group of students, and they were fighting for clemency for battered women. So there was a whole coalition for clemency for, for clemency for people who women. were battered. Correct. And so they were students were looking at our cases. This one student had wrote a journal article about why I should be granted clemency mm. because the state of Washington actually has a battered child syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were kind of comparing it to that. But I didn't fit the traditional battered spouse syndrome. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, I kind of fell through some cracks. Um, I, wasn't a part of the coalition, but the law professor was interested in my case, assigned a student to it. He later became a prosecutor once he graduated. And so him him and Ellen really worked to get me. They worked hard for my... How cool is that? So he was in law school and then got out and and, and began to help with your case. He was much older when he went to law school. Yeah. Yeah, and this was his second career in life. Yeah. And, you know, he told me, he said... When I actually went to law school, he's, no, it was when he was going to become a prosecutor. Like, Mm -hmm. he had graduated, he and I had become friends. um, He said, you know, as a prosecutor, he said, I don't feel like it's my job to punish people. He said, I think that there's very few true evil out there, but it does exist. Mm -hmm. He said, and I need to protect the public from that. Right. He said, and other than that, it's my job to help guide people who are getting off on the wrong path mm. an opportunity to get back on the right one. Wow. And when he put it like that, I was like, okay, you can be a prosecutor. Yeah. We can still be friends, <laughs> right? Um, but so these two kind of tag teamed. And at that time, um, th- anyway, that we had that journal article. It got to Governor Carnahan's chief of staff. Okay. So Governor Carnahan heard about my case. And we had gotten... That's a long ways up the chain. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we had gotten word that when the Senate race with Ashcroft was over, that he was going to really look at my case and most likely grant me the life sentence, the commutation. But then he died in a plane crash. Mm -hmm. And then the next governor who came in was Governor Holden. Mm -hmm. And we, they had a meeting and we were told... You need public support behind Stacy because there's political pressure. My prosecutor was still against me being released and mm-hmm. was vocal about it. Yeah. So, like, what do you do? How do you get public support? Right. That's later that week, a freelance reporter contacted Ellen and was like, I saw 
the website you put together for Stacy, which I don't even know what a website is, right? Right, because you're in prison. I'm in prison. I've yeah. been there since There's no 1990, internet. right? Um, and I want to do I want to do an article about her case, and so Ellen comes to me. It's like, hey, we're gonna you need to do this, and I was like, no, I'm not doing this. I don't I don't want to do this because I didn't want to be public. Mm. I didn't want. I don't know how to explain it, but even if it would help, right? Because. Yeah. Now, not only do I have the shame of what he did to me, but now I have the shame of what I did to him. Okay. And how, how do I admit that mm-hmm. to all? And then, these how people? are you perceived? How yeah. do I face this? How do I, how do I deal with it? How do I, because pro- you know, it's however many years later, and I still haven't fully dealt sure. with that, right? Yeah. Um. It's a big deal. Oh my god! <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to, how to say anything more. It's huge. Yes. Yeah. So the fact that you're sitting here and we're having this conversation is huge because you've you've overcome so much and. But you don't overcome it. You live through it. I guess that yeah. I guess that's the wrong right. word. It means that you're you survive so much is what I mean. Correct. And and that was kind of it. It was the. Ellen, Ellen sat me down and Ellen's, Ellen's an amazing person. And she's like, look, if you don't do this, you, you better are do going this. to die in prison. Yeah. And I don't think I ever had it put to me that way. And she's mm-hmm. like, even, she said, no matter what, they're going to tell your story. They might as well. Hear you might some as well be involved in you. it. Right. Yep. And the main thing was just as hard as it was just to be present. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in my brain, I wanted to escape to my little safe world that sure. I had created for myself. So I had to stay present, and I just, you have to just be open, and you have to be transparent, because it is what it is at this point. You know, I'm not asking forgiveness. Right. I'm asking for understanding, which is completely different. Yeah. And I'm saying, I am still a human being. I still deserve some type of life, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I mean, my abuse started at eight. I'm in prison at 18. What? What? Yeah. Um, so anyway, Governor Holden left my, let me back up just a second. So that's what led to all the other media attention. Once that, I did that Glamour Magazine article. That Glamour Magazine article was the, the, the genesis of, of everything else that started roll, rolling for you for public. Absolutely. Um, we did like Larry King Live mm-hmm. and, um, I remember Ellen saying, oh, they're not going to allow satellites, so you're going to get this reporter named Nancy Grace. I'm like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) No. But we did it. We did it. And, you know, the first words out of her mouth were, "Um, if you think that I'm going to let you sit on TV and cry and weaken another prosecutor's case, (laughs) you need to think again. But by the end of the interview, like, she supported my release. Yeah. Um, Good for you. Thank you. It was terrifying. But you know what? It is what it is. Mm-hmm. It, and this is my life yeah. and people are either going to understand and help. And it's more just getting them to see that, yes, this happened, mm-hmm. you know, yes, this happened. I need you to understand how I could have gotten to this point. Um, so when it got to governor blunt, so he would have known quite a bit about it because it kind of would have been encircling. So we did all that during governor Holden's administration. Okay. And then governor Holden left my application unanswered. And then Governor Blunt came in. Picks it up. And picks it up. But, you know, at that time, I'm done, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I just, I can't do it anymore. Well, there's years that have gone by. Yes. Well, and I can't continue, right? Like, 
ev- anytime we had an interview request, we mm-hmm. just I had to stop because it was very painful. Mm-hmm. Because you try to, and I'm sorry I didn't do it with you, but I try to access more of myself at that time because, mm-hmm. of course, I have walls built up, but I still have to be able to survive the next day, right? right? And no matter what, even twenty something years later, it's still painful. Absolutely, it still hurts, and I've removed myself from it just a little bit. Not full force like I used to do, yeah. but enough where it doesn't affect me um, to a devastating degree. Mm-hmm. Right? It still hurts. It's always going to hurt. And um, so I'd stopped doing the interviews. And I did one final one, and it was about me kind of making peace with where I was. Mm-hmm. Right? Because no matter where you are, that's your life. And no matter what, you got to live it. Win the day, one day at a time. And it doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't matter if it's behind bars. It doesn't matter if Mm -hmm. it's on a deserted island. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, in paradise. Mm -hmm. You have to live your life. And um, that was kind of it. I had found from doing those interviews, I'd had so many people that reached out to me. um, And it's all in the book. People can go and read it. But just having their understanding. Mm-hmm. Having their understanding freed me in a way that nothing else could. Yeah, the, right? the, that feedback of uh, of knowing. Yeah, and for it to also be the, I understand. You know, I could have easily been you. Like, how many people? Yeah, had the same thoughts that I had had. Like, mm-hmm. who understood? They didn't. Right. It was just amazing how many people understood mm-hmm. and how many people had compassion. And it wasn't the, you did this and you did that and you did this. Because the other questions. Following know, the public narrative of when it all happened. Yeah. Correct. Because one of the first questions you always get is, why didn't you tell somebody? Well, I did tell somebody. Right. I told somebody when I was in the eighth grade and they were married to a police officer. Mm-hmm. And they, what I thought they did was I thought they told my mom standing in front of me. But. And yeah. then how that parlays into the rest of now I'm too scared because now, you know. Yeah, or do, will they believe me or all the other things that go along with that. Yes. I'm a kid. Yeah, right, yeah. right. There's not that compassion for yeah. this is a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I didn't necessarily always deserve that compassion. Well, I think kids always deserve compassion because they're just trying to get there. They're not an adult yet. But going back to the Governor Blunt thing, okay. he – how do you find out about this? <laughs> so Christmas Eve, so Thanksgiving comes. Blunt has decided. Governor Blunt has decided not to run again. Mm-hmm. It was Governor Matt Blunt, and his office made an announcement on Thanksgiving that they would be granting cr- clemencies around Christmas, which they always governors always do that. Mm-hmm. They do it around the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, people are busy, less attention. So Christmas Eve comes, and. Well, before Christmas Eve, like during that week, like I'm watching all these people get these white slips of paper in the mail, and it's people getting their answers back from the governor's office. Mm. Um, and I never got a white slip of paper. And then Christmas Eve comes, and the Channel 12 News out there in Jason Jefferson City announces 12 clemency recipients. And be it, like it could have been a pardon, could have been a commutation, mm-hmm. but 12 happened. And, you know, as they're reading the names, like, I keep waiting to hear my name, just hope, hoping I'm going to hear yeah. my name. And I don't. And I'm devastated. 
devastated because the next governor is Governor Nixon, and he's a former attorney mm-hmm. general. Yeah, AG. And yeah, and I'm like, I'm just, this isn't going to happen. Yeah. You know, and he's probably going to be elected for eight years, so this is it. This yeah. is it. This this is the moment that I had the, I have life without parole, and I'm going to die in prison. Yeah, now it, it, it landed right on your head. Mm-hmm. And I was bitter, and I was angry, and I was suicidal. And one of the reasons why I hadn't committed suicide when I was younger was I did a junior thesis on it. Um, and I had remembered reading a book by Dr. Raymond Moody, and they talked about people that had committed suicide. And they said people who commit suicide are, like, trapped on this plane of existence forever, which is probably why I didn't kill myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> prior to coming to prison. And then I thinking, okay, well, if I kill myself right now, then I'm trapped on this plane of existence mm-hmm. forever and there's no end. Right. Like, so I had my come to Jesus meeting where I'm like, okay, God, if this is it, this is what you want for me. Then just please give me the peace that I had when I had hope. Mm. You don't have to let me go. Give just, me hope. Just give me not, not hope. Give me peace. 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 Okay. Let me find my purpose. Okay. Right. And so then I started taking stock of everything I did have, which, like, mentally I was healthy, right? Like, I had my senses. I felt, and I understood. And um, I had my dogs where I could train them. We didn't even talk about that. I know. Well, there's there's a lot. Um, So I had them, and I could love them, and I could be a bridge for somebody who was incarcerated by their body, Mm -hmm. right? Like, there was a lot of good that I was doing. Well, this dog training thing was such a big thing for you because you made these connections with these dogs right. that I thought was so. And I, I want you have you have a great quote. I got to put my glasses back on here. I love this because I love dogs. I hope I can be the kind of person my dog thinks I am. Yeah, they actually have a little plaque on that. Like <laughs> I love that. Little, I've never heard that before. I love that. But somebody had said that, and it's true. Because they just look at you with such love. Yeah, every day. It's like when you come home, it's like the first time that that they can't believe that you're back. So I had started that. Yes. And how long long had uh, that been going on with you training the dogs? How many dogs did you train while you were in prison? A lot. Yeah. (laughs) But it started, I can't remember the exact year it started. I almost want to say 2006. Okay. So closer towards the end. For like two or three years, three, four years. So I had... um, when I did the Glamour article, I didn't have the dogs. Okay. And then shortly after, like, the dogs came in, and it was it was shortly after that. Yeah. And the dogs really helped me cope. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I just can't imagine. It can't would be imagine. so great. So, um, yep, completely helped me cope. So, so I had that come to Jesus meeting, and you know what? I really did have peace. Mm. Like, I was filled with a peace. I like, can't I'm all right. Yeah. Okay. This is what it is, right? And I know who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really was at peace. Um, of course, I still, you know, wanted. Sure. Right. Well, you never why, wanted. Why wouldn't there. you? Right. right. But it was, it was. My sister had just had a baby, and I think that me not being able to be a part of that child's life mm-hmm. was just devastating. Sure. Right. Um, so anyway, I had that come to Jesus meeting and, um, it was Saturday. So sitting on my bed, let me back up. It was dog training 
it was a Wednesday. I get a little slip, a little sticky note that says, call your attorney tomorrow. So I called her on Thursday at 1 o'clock. And she told me, she said, Stacy, they're still looking at your case. And I said, no, they're not. I'm like, no, they're not. They've already done what they're going to do. It already happened. And she's like, no. Detective Schulte called me. And they had called him, which mm-hmm. Detective Schulte was the first guy at the scene of the crime took your testimony. That officer. Yep. Yep. They never testified. And he um he talked to the governor's office. And um so she's I said, Well she said, I didn't know whether to tell you or not because I didn't want to get your hopes up. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And I was like, Okay. It is, you know, it is it is what it is. And um I'm going to be hopeful, but I'm not. I'm not going to throw myself all the way out there. Right. Yeah. And so Saturday I was sitting on my bunk, and I was in a four-man room, and I get called out to the rotunda at count time. I don't know if you know the horror of being called out to the Anytime rotunda. Anytime you get called out in prison is, is usually a bad thing. At count time, yeah. it means. Count time means you, if you're not in your spot at count time. They can they can. St- Put you in the hole because they, they, they call it escape or whatever they want to deem you for. Right. But it's the biggest thing in prison is count time. And if you get called to the rotunda at count time, it usually means one of two things. One, you're in trouble, or two, somebody in your family died. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's Saturday. I'm reading People magazine, and um, I get called out to the rotunda. And it's an officer that I don't know. I don't know this officer. And he hands me the phone, the state phone, the white phone. The real one. Right? Like, that does not happen. So he hands me the phone, and I'm like, hello? And it's the captain, and it's a female. And she said, Miss Lannert, I need you to take this telephone number down, and then I need you to go to the offender phones, and I need you to call this number. And I said, well, ma'am, I don't have a pen. And. So, can't even imagine. So she said, have the officer give you a pen. So he gives me a pen, and I write the number on my hand. And then I give it back. And she goes, okay, now I want you to get off this phone and go call this number. They don't tell me who it is. Mm-hmm. They just tell me go call this number. And I said, well, ma'am, I can't do that because it's count time, and I haven't been counted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's the rules. Yeah. And I guess I was institutionalized. We, do, we all get institutionalized because you have to. Right. And um, so she goes, you put that officer on the phone. And um, she goes, and you make that call. I'm the captain. I'm the ship captain. And I'm giving you a direct order to go mm-hmm. make that phone call. And I'm like, okay, can you please <laughs> tell him? Because I don't know him. Right. So um, so I go and I go to the offender phones, the blue phones. And I pick up the phone and I call this number that's written on my hand. And it was Ellen. It was her cell phone or her Whatever phone. phone. Yeah. It was a private phone. I had always called her at her mm-hmm. office. So this is my attorney, Ellen. And they start playing the, you. this call is from an offender at a correctional facility, blah, blah, blah. And But before that happened, I hear her go, Stacy, And then nothing, right? Then they roll into the offender call. Mantra, yeah. Yeah. And then she presses it, and she comes on the line, and um, she goes, we got it. <sighs> Right? And I said, we got it. And she said, yeah, we got it. 
And I just laid the phone on this little table. There was this little table in front of me, and I just laid the phone, and I just laid my head down, and I just started crying. And then when I composed myself a little bit, um, you know, I picked the phone back up, and I'm like, okay, what does this mean? (laughs) And uh, she's like, I don't really know what it means. She's like, they commuted your sentence 20 years, time served, immediate release. Good Lord. Yeah. Wow. And she's like, I'm like, okay, Ellen, I got to go. It's count time. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, call me back after count. (laughs) So um, I go into the bathroom, like it's a shared bathroom. And I go into the bathroom before I go back into my room because I can't walk. Like I can't, I can't take those few extra steps. Yeah. Just processing, right? Like. I'm dizzy with you telling me this. And I've never had to process anything good. Yeah. Right? Like, so my brain just didn't really know how It was to just off the charts. Yeah. So I'm crying. Just fed you a whole bucket full of serotonin. <laughs> People hear me crying. My, one of my friends comes into the bathroom. And she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, I think, I, I think I'm going home. Oh, God. And uh, she's like, what? <laughs> so... So anyways, so then I finally make it back to my room. The officer that I don't know calls over the loudspeaker and is like, everybody go back to your rooms because we're a little loud at this point. Um, And it is count time. So I go back to my room, and the second I walk in the door, I just fell to my knees, Mm. right? And just into that, like, yoga, prayer pose, baby pose. And, you know, I just thank God because, I mean, that was nothing short of a miracle. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you went from life in prison without parole to being – Released six days later, six days later, because we didn't know what the immediate release meant. And Monday, what did that mean? Like, how do you get immediately released? How does that work? So Monday was the governor's last day. Like the new governor's coming in on Monday, right? Nick, Governor Nixon's being inaugurated on Monday. So it was kind of we thought, and the parole board always had the six month waiting period. Like anytime you got clemency, you had to wait six months before you saw him. So mm. we thought I'd have a six month six waiting months. period. Yeah. And it was kind of funny because so that day, the Monday, Monday morning, the IPO, the institutional parole officer, walks into the rotunda, mm-hmm. and I was nice to almost everybody because you know I don't have anything against the people that right. work there, but I never liked the IPO. It's not that I didn't like them; it was they were difficult. No, they weren't no. difficult. It was it was too painful. Yeah. To know to be pleasant, right? Yeah. Like so, I just kind of acted like they didn't exist. Went the other way. Yeah. Right. I never really made eye contact. Yeah. I was never pleasant. Yeah. I never formed any kind of right hello goodbye kind right. of thing because I'm never going to see them. Right. I don't need to know their name. Right. Um, and this time the IPO walks in the rotunda, and I actually looked at him, and I waved because <laughs> I w- and I remember thinking. You're going to know my name, mm-hmm. right? Like before you never would, but you're going to know my name. And he looks at me and he points at me and gestures for me to come out there. And I was like, me, me. So I walk out and this IPO is in the rotunda. And he's like, are you ready to go um, to your home plan? And I was like, yeah, yes, yeah. I am. Yeah. Right. I guess so. After 18 <laughs> years, I might as well go <laughs> check out the home plan. Right. So I went back to the my room, grabbed my address book, and went back to the back and told him where I was going to go live. And I even asked him, I was like, what about the six-month waiting period? He's uh, like, look. The board. Oh, you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, stupid me. Yeah. Stupid me. <laughs> Did you guys forget about the six-month waiting plan? <laughs> I said, and this is a holiday. Why are you here? And yeah. he said, 
they the board called me and said, go do your job. And I said, well, but, you know, this governor's on the way out. So yeah. Doesn't matter, he's my boss. And when he gave the order, he was my boss. So it's And we're going to do what official. he said to do. And so that was on Monday. By Friday, I left the institution. Tell me about that. What was on the other side of that fence? Oh, my God. So um, I talked to somebody the day before, and they gave me two different time options to leave because yeah. there was a lot of media there because mm-hmm. it was, it big was pretty deal. big. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, your story is a big deal nationally. I mean, it's it's something that I mean, you get you get to sit down with Oprah, which, by the way, you were very good on Oprah. I mean, you were so I would think when you go on Oprah, you'd be like frozen, paralyzed because this is Oprah. And you were just so authentic and honest and just and even kind of funny. You said something at the end there about I forget what it was. Um it has something to do with rules. Oh, I was, uh, you know, when it's over, I'm probably going to ask you if it's okay to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, right. but it was kind of funny because it it fit the moment. But anyway, you you I'm sure, yeah, you walked out into a world of of media. So they, yeah, and they had given me two different time options to leave. Like I could either leave at seven, or I could leave at nine because everybody else that was scheduled for a release was leaving at like seven thirty. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't want to impact their leaving. Because they were scheduled to leave, right? Right. So I was like, I'll wait to leave after them. Okay. Well, they wound up calling me at 7 o'clock to leave, and I wasn't ready. Like, my brain, my brain. And I remember walking out of the housing unit, and I had this long, lone walk to the um, portico because the yard wasn't open yet. Like, it was 7 a.m., and it didn't open until, mm-hmm. like, 9. And I remember thinking... Am I going to be okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the only home I've ever really uh, that I've. It had been your home, right? Yeah, right. And you're and leaving it, a lot of people that was like family that you that you, are you're kind of feel like you're abandoning because they're going to stay behind. They're my family of choice, right? So it was, eighteen years out, eighteen years in, and I'm walking that walk, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know who I am out there. I know who I am in here, yep. and I don't even really know how to survive out there. So I had all this doubt well because it all came at you at once yes and as i'm leaving so i had all this doubt and fear that's like that's weighing on me for the first few steps and then i was like you know what's good god hasn't brought me this far to Mm -hmm. (laughs) like i just had a miracle Mm -hmm. and i can't let doubt and fear get in the way of what my future is going to be so these are going to be the last steps i ever take on this path and um I'm walking to a new life. And now it's my turn. Mm -hmm. Now it's my turn. Because before, when I was at home, it wasn't my life. Mm -hmm. I didn't have choices. I like that. Now it's your turn. Thanks. It's my turn to discover who I'm going to be out here. On your terms. Yes. Yeah, I think I know who I am. Now let me find out who I really am Mm -hmm. and what I'm really capable of. Mm -hmm. And here I am. And here you are, and you did step. I I did. Gosh. I did some steps. you did so many different things, um, you know, and all these things that you did too, you didn't know. It was stepping into the unknown. Uh, you still did some dog training, but you went to law school. Uh, then you stepped into to really doing great things in the world of law because there can be things that aren't so great in the world of law, but you're doing things and using your experience where it really affects things that you know. And it's just... You know, I think 
Stacy, if there's more of that, the whole, you know, everything could be better. But I, it's, I just think it's so great that you have a seat at the table with who you are uh, doing what you do. And how do you feel now that you've, I, I ought to ask this too, going through everything that you've gone through and survived what you've gone through, what would you tell the listeners out there of what your biggest takeaway is, is how you make that happen? So one step at a time, mm-hmm. right? One step at a time. I'm a big believer so, in that. Right. We talk about me going to law school, but it started with me going to community college, yeah. right? So I went to community college, and then I went and did finished up my four-year degree, and then went to law school. So every single thing was just um, a single step because otherwise it becomes too heavy and it weighs you down. Like when I was studying for the bar, I had a mental block after after I graduated law school and I'm studying for this bar because I had already been approved through character and fitness. This is before I received a pardon. Mm -hmm. And I'd been approved for character and fitness. So here I am, I'm a felon. I'm sitting for the bar with my felony intact. And so many people believed in me. So many people believed in me and supported me. So what if I've gotten this far and I've graduated law school and now I pass the bar or I flunked the bar, uh-huh. right? <laughs> like it was just, it was so much. And, you know, I just really had to repeat. I have a couple mantras. Like yeah. one of them is life begins at the end of your comfort zone. I and love that. <laughs> thank you. And the second is how do you eat an elephant? One, one bite at a one time. One bite at a time. Right? Not that nobody actually I know, but it's elephant. so good. But it is, and it's true. And you just have to take, you have to prepare today for what you want tomorrow mm-hmm. and take those steps in faith. Well, I'll tell you something I think, and it's something you know personal to me, is that when we met each other, and we're at this nice, really nice, basically the Harvard of the Midwest, and Stacy, you got out there on stage, and you presented yourself so well. And, you know, we're such a, basically an inspiration to everybody that was in the room there that you had been through all this and you were just confidently telling these numbers and telling your story. And, and I was thinking, you know, it made me so proud because we are all in this ex-felon world and you give such a good representation to that face and that voice. And I just, I hope you just keep doing that because that, is so important to creating that change of the second chances that people are looking for, that people can get out, find their way, grit their way through. But like you said, one step at a time, eating the elephant one, one piece at a time. But you, had, you do have to step into the unknowns. Yes, you do. And those are fearful. And that's why we call this podcast Nightmare Success. Everything you want is on the other side of that fear. you got to get over, under, around it, wherever you go. But you've, you've lived that, which yes. I think is really cool, Stacy. Thanks. And, you know, part of it's just like I've been able to do things that I didn't even know were possible. Yeah. And part of it is more just because I thought, let's try. Yeah. Right? Let's try. Yeah. And I think, too, I, uh, you get a mindset, I think, when you get out is that I'm not going to waste time. Yes, exactly. You're not going to waste time. And the other part is just – like, for me, I love what I'm doing. It's a passion. Yes, it is a passion. Yeah. Because I get to remind people that people who are in prison, they're still people. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. There's humanity underneath whatever horrors happened. And 
I think that's why, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate. Well, I, I think it's, you know, you don't, you, when you go through what you've gone through, you don't judge a book by its cover. You get deeper, get into the layer because uh, you never know. You never know. Right. Um, for those looking for a book out there, uh, again, Stacy did write one. It's called Redemption, a story of sisterhood, survival, finding freedom behind bars. And look, hey, Brent also wrote a book. It's called Nightmare Success. Uh, is yours Barnes & Noble, Amazon? Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Mine's, yeah, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, if anybody wants to go there. Um, love the likes, uh, social media comments. If you want to, leave a review on Apple, Spotify. You want to follow the show, there's little three little lines up on the Apple corner there. And it drops down to say follow. Spotify, you got a little bell. Uh, leave me a message on brentcassie.com. I like that. We can talk back and forth about your ideas and thoughts about the show. As I used to say, st- I used to say when uh, I was writing my emails and communications back and forth at Leavenworth, stay strong, and I'll do the same. Stacy, thank you so much for being a guest today. No you're, you're awesome. Thank you. Nightmare success in and out. Thanks for being here today.